All right. Uh, good morning. It is such a joy for me to be with you all today. Um, and today in our study, we are shifting to a new section of the story in Joshua. And in some ways that might come as a bit of a relief to us, right? In Joshua, like I said, when I was here a few weeks ago, we have had to confront a level of destruction, of failure and bloodshed that feels far removed from our everyday lives. And on some level feels really far removed from the gospel. It's a hard book. There's some really challenging stuff we have had to confront. Um, and there, right, is a cultural distance when we read anything in scripture, but it has maybe felt a little louder in Joshua. But now the major battles are over. Joshua is old, he's advanced in years, and we are entering the third section of the book that most commentators call the dividing of the land. And now the task at hand is a very practical one. Reading Joshua 13 through 21 is intimidating, not because of the bloodshed, but in all honesty, because of the boredom. <laughs> each name and sometimes even former name, each city and some of the geographical features get included. Preparing for this section in Joshua felt like last fall when I taught on that section in Exodus that in painstaking detail outlined how the Israelites were to construct the tabernacle. The section that Les Newsome, who's a pastor in Mississippi, lovingly called the passage in which the best read, uh, laid read the Bible in a year plan goes to die. <laughs> in Exodus, the message for us was that God is communicating his character just as much in the details and the construction of their tabernacle as he had in the rescue of his people. In the gold and the acacia wood and the measurements, God was making a way to relate to his people personally and permanently. And here in Joshua, as borders are drawn, the lots are cast, the city of refuge are identified, God is again communicating his character just as much as he was when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Again, like Susan, I am leaning heavily, very heavily, on Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, who helped me understand better the parts of these nine chapters that are culturally distant, yes, but still familiar in the way that they communicate the personal and permanent way through covenant God desires to be with his people. Like all of scripture, this continues the story about God's faithfulness to his people. And the section closes with, uh, with what many argue is like the thesis statement for all of Joshua. Joshua 1, uh, 21, 43 through 45, which reads, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. I mean, I feel like we could just like close in prayer right there. God is faithful to his promises and the allotment and dividing isn't necessarily thrilling, but it is essential for us to see that what God promises he fulfills. Del Ralph Davis makes the case that not one of these details staggers the imagination, but they are little incarnations of God's fidelity and are therefore hardly boring. Susan titled our personal and group study this week, The Reading of the Will. And when I think about this idea of wills or inheritances, I can't help but draw parallels to a recent obsession of mine, a television program, of course, on PBS called Finding Your Roots. I think Megan and Chris have heard my rant on this, but the premise of the show is that celebrity guests are invited to have a conversation with the host, Henry Louis Gates Jr., to together look at a book of life. And what this book of life is, is it's something that's been compiled for the guest by a professional group of genealogists and historians. And the book is like zooming in on different sections of a family tree. It includes documents and photographs, DNA maps, and history lessons, all which are helping the guests better understand the cultural, political, and economic realities of the world that their ancestors were living in and who their ancestors were even to begin with. 
And the book takes months, sometimes even years, to compile. And it includes information from both right, this genealogical trail that we all have in our DNA, but then also the paper trail that combines to tell the story of someone's ancestral history. So we're looking at like ship logs, baptismal records, marriage certificates, Ellis Island paperwork, newspaper articles, sort of like connections to others' shared DNA. And often the guests will come in with a question. Sometimes there's family estrangement and they are curious about the distant side of the family. Sometimes there are legends, right, that have been passed down in a family about an ancestral connection to a famous place, maybe to a famous person, a fam famous moment in history, and they just want to know, is this really true? Every guest comes in with different professed motivations to learn about other people. But every guest, I would argue, is also united by this lingering human question of who am I? And it is through the connection to the people and the events of the past, not necessarily their own actions, that they hope to find some answers in this question. I would make the case that the Old Testament law and history books we have been studying the last three falls semesters serve kind of as a book of life, so to speak, for the Israelites. The stories, the genealogies, the maps, the historical events, all compiled so that they could look to the past to answer this question of who am I, and more importantly, whose am I? As the people of God, we can look to these passages similarly. They are culturally distant, yes. We are not the Israelites. We don't see them in exactly the same way, but they communicate to us the fundamental unchanging truth about the way God desires to relate to and be with his people. In the story of God, we find our roots. I love everything about finding your roots. I could really talk about it for the rest of the day, but the silly illustration that I think best suits our passage for today comes from Tina Fey's experience and reaction to one of her ancestors. So Gates and his team are able to trace Fey's ancestry back to England in the 1740s. And Tina Fey is surprised to even have any ancestry in England at all. And Gates introduces Tina Fey to her fifth great grandfather, a man named John Hewson, who is a textile manufacturer of such esteem that Benjamin Franklin writes a letter vouching for his character when he arrives in Pennsylvania to start a life and career there. And that's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> so Gates tells Tina Fey this information, and then he has her dramatically turn the page in her book of life, and she sees the same picture that I included at the top of your handout. Um, and when Fey sees the image, she like laughs. She goes, oh my gosh, like, that looks so much like my dad. That's bananas. She goes on to say, I would always look at that era of portrait in a museum and feel they were sort of comical because they are so white and kind of Britishy. Like, look at that pasty old white man. But oh wait, this pasty old white man is me. I can relate to Fey's assertion that portraits like these don't really strike my curiosity. You probably saw the picture on the handout and were interested only because you wanted to know why on earth I had included it. But if I, and if it had been like hanging on the wall, say as you walked in to Connell this morning, you probably would have walked right by it without giving it a second glance. In a room full of portraits like this at a museum, I would probably do little more than a quick walkthrough, a skim, so to speak. But if this was my fifth great grandfather, even just knowing whose great grandfather this is, the picture strikes a different chord. I approach it with curiosity, I look for the family resemblance, I am drawn to the story, and I feel a connection to it. We often approach passages like the one we read for today in scripture, like we are walking into a portrait gallery, as a Faye called it, British pasty old white men. We see it only as a pass-through as we make our way to see the Van Gogh, something similar, or something familiar, something more, that more obviously speaks to us. We wonder why it's there, we just kind of skim through it, we go straight to a commentary to help make sense of it all. 
And honestly, I would have been tempted to do that with chapters 13 through 21 before Susan asked me to teach from them. Dale Ralph Davis argues um, that our problem is not the nature of this passage with its names and its borders. Our problem with this passage is that we are too detached. There's a real sense of cultural distance to this passage in the same way portraits of stuffy old British men feel culturally distant. But Davis makes the case that insofar as possible, we must see this land distribution as an Israelite would have seen it. What would it look like for us to wisely reattach ourselves to this passage? How might the Israelites have seen it? And in what ways can we find our roots in it? For the Israelites, the details of these chapters matter deeply. The land is their God-promised, God-given inheritance. And in these passages lie the answer to the very practical question, um, okay, so we're here, where, where do I go now? <laughs> this generation of Israelites had never had a permanent sense of home. And I think it really takes a second for the implications of that to really sink in for us. Suddenly, they are going from encampments to cities. They're going from being traveling companions to neighbors with one another. They're going from belonging to a tribe to belonging to a place. Suddenly, the Israelites will have an answer to the question, where are you from? That's not really something that they ever would have had an answer to before. Every detail matters in order to facilitate this transition and to have it become a reality. And if I was an Israelite, these would be the details that I craved about my first home. Where am I gonna be? What city will I live in? Finally, in Joshua 13 through 21, we get the tangible and practical look of what it was like for the Israelites to experience the promise that had been a motivating force behind everything they had done since they became a people. Genesis 12, right, roughly 600 years earlier, God showed Abraham this land and promised that it would be given to Abraham's descendants. And now the Israelites know that what God promises, he fulfills. They have been given their promised inheritance. The only parallels to our everyday lives I can draw feel pretty feeble in comparison to what it would have felt like for the Israelites to finally and tangibly experience the fulfillment of the promise that had been at the heart of everything they had ever done. Every why question the Israelites had asked of God, of Moses, of Joshua had been answered with the reminder of this promise. And now it is here. They are ready to move in. I think we get glimpses of that feeling when maybe we close on a new home. Maybe it's when we attend a concert that we bought tickets for months ago, when we arrive at a long awaited vacation or bring a baby home for the first time. And I know that we will get a glimpse of the sense of having arrived when we worship together for the first time in our new building. But more so than these tangible experiences, I think our true connection to this passage comes when we think about our, promised our own promised inheritance from the Lord. The same God that through covenant has always been making a way to be with his people, both personally and permanently. But what was once demonstrated through the giving of the land is now a permanent place in the new heavens and the new, uh, new earth secured for us in Christ. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 tells us, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestined according to the purposes of him who work all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Israelites looked to the promised land and the drawn borders as incarnations of God's fidelity. We look to Christ, through his spirit. The ultimate incarnation of God's fidelity is Christ for us. And as we relate to that which God promises in this passage, we are steadied and encouraged when we see the consistent faithful character of God. What God promises, he fulfills. As Davis states it, faith finds both steadfastness and expectancy by rehearsing and reveling in Yahweh's past acts of faithfulness. 
When we remember and see throughout history God is faithful, we are encouraged to remain steadfast and expectant in light of what we have been promised. But like Romans 15:4 says, in the passages of the Old Testament, we find not only encouragement, but also instruction. And as we go through these nine chapters, I think we see a variety of examples of how the Israelites respond to the inheritance that they have been given that I think can serve as instruction to us and hopefully help us wisely reattach ourselves to this passage. I want to spend some time looking at these responses, but I think first we should remind ourselves of the source of our inheritance through the example of the Levites. So um, chapter 13, verse 33 reads, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. Something along these lines is repeated a few times throughout the text, that the Levites receive no allotment. They receive no section of land that they can call their own. And you read that at first and you're like, wait, that like seems kind of unfair. But remembering the fuller context, the Levites have always had a different role to play since the building of the tabernacle. The Levites are the tribe of Aaron and Moses, and from Aaron's bloodline, the priesthood is established. Exodus 28 and 29 gives more insight into that, the appointment of a priest that mediates for the people to God. As witnesses to God's character and law, and as mediators for the people, it makes sense that the Levites are not gonna be isolated in their own allotment, in their own section on the map, but instead they are assigned cities in chapter 21 among each of the tribes where they are to dwell, to settle, and to serve. So there is a practical ministerial design to God's distribution. From these cities, the Levites have access to all of Israel, instructing them in the ways of the covenant. But the Levites remain as sojourners to also serve as a reminder that even in promised land living, God's people are to keep the focus on the true gift of God himself. Ultimately, God is our inheritance. It is faithful for the Israelites to celebrate the land. It's a good gift from God that should be celebrated like all things that come from his hand. But the Levites allotment remind us that God is the blessing himself, that the true inheritance is Yahweh himself. The land would not be theirs without him. God was not a tool merely to get the land. Honestly, it would not have even been on the Israelites' radar as something to long for if God had not promised it. The land is a gift from the relationship, but it is not a replacement for the relationship. And the Levites' inheritance is a reminder of that. In the same way, God is not our tool for salvation. He is our salvation. Without him, salvation would not even be on our radar as something to long for. We depend on him to even recognize our need of him. As the line in one of my favorite hymns, Come the Sinner, says, All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him, and even this he gives you. As we read about a promised land that is not ours, but is connected to a promised restoration of all things that we wait for, the centrality of our dependence on God, more so than on his gifts, is essential, and a helpful frame as we look at four examples of how the people responded to their allotment from God. So the first example that we look at is Caleb, whose allotment we read about in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. And Caleb receives the first allotment west of the Jordan as a member of the tribe of Judah. Caleb says to Joshua in verse 6, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked 
will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So here Caleb is basically like paraphrasing, retelling what occurred in Numbers 13 and 14, when Moses sent scouts representing each tribe into the land, and only Caleb and Joshua responded in faith that, hey, we've got this, like the Israelites could successfully take this land with God's help. And it's the failure and overall faithlessness of this mission that condemns the Israelites of that generation at God's command to wander in the desert for 40 years, right? Everyone else says, like, the guys are too scary, they're giants. Susan kind of talked about this last week. Only Caleb and Joshua respond with faith. And God promised that the only representatives from that generation who would make it to the promised land would be Caleb and Joshua as a recognition of their faith. We know God remained faithful to this promise to Joshua. He's been a pretty prominent character in the book thus far. But at the end of chapter 19, we, he, we see him, um, oh, sorry. And at the end of chapter 19, we're going to see Joshua receive his allotment from God. It's a city amongst the tribe of Ephraim. But we had not heard of Caleb since Numbers. And the writer of Joshua wants us to know that Caleb too, um, that to Caleb too, God was faithful. Not only that, but Caleb remains for us an example of biblical and actionable faithfulness. He goes on to say in verse 10, Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said to this to Moses. While Israel moved about in the wilderness, so here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Achanites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Caleb recognizes that God kept his promise both to Israel by giving them the land, but also to him by allowing him to possess it. And not only that, but God um, kept Caleb strong and able to fight for the land. And now Caleb is demonstrating faith that God will continue to provide him strength until it is finished. It is God's past faithfulness that he holds in mind as he prepares for the last push to claim Hebron from the Achanites and to give himself and his family a place to call home. I love this pattern that um, Caleb demonstrates and that Davis in his commentary highlights. Faith takes in God's goodness, it responds in gratitude, and then it finds grace for God's next call. That is the call of the Christian life. My prayer is that our response to the inheritance of God might, like Caleb's, be marked by this pattern of taking in God's goodness, responding with gratitude, and then finding grace for what's next. Our next example comes in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6. In the midst of Joshua giving um, the Lord's designation, or designated allotment to the tribes of Joseph, a group of women approach the priest, Joshua, and other leaders. And they are the daughters of Zelophehad. I honestly am not totally sure how to pronounce that. Susan, <laughs> that was a comforting look. Thank you. Um, but these women, they say in verse 4, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. So Joshua gave them an inheritance along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. Zelophehad's daughters demonstrate boldness in relation to God's inheritance. They are bold to request what Yahweh has already promised to them back in Numbers 27, 1 through 11. In verse 3, they made their initial request known before Moses the priest and the priest, stating, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's father followers who band together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no sons? Give us property among our father's relatives. And so Moses brings this request before God, and God not only gives the daughters of Zelophehad what he asks, um, 
what they asked for, but from this request, he sets a precedent that daughters will inherit if a father leaves behind no sons. He does even more than what they initially asked for. How often do we find ourselves afraid to ask for help when we are in need like these daughters? These women model bold faith in response to the promises of God. Not only do they initially ask Moses for help, but then they come back around and they remind Joshua what has been promised to them. They have a deep understanding of their dependence on the promises of God. Without this allotment, they would remain sojourners in the land, but they also have a faithful recognition that God delights to fulfill his promises. They don't worry about being a burden or decide to not ask because Joshua is too busy. They don't try to fix it themselves. They don't try to pretend in their grief and loss that everything's fine, we're fine, it's normal. They vulnerably ask for help and they make sure what has been promised they receive. A couple summers ago in um, the, I guess, summer Bible study, we read Gentle and Lowly and reflecting on the bold faith of these women in comparison to my own typical like grin and bear it mindset reminded me of some of the truth that Ortland shattered a lot of my pride and preconceived notions with when talking about the heart of Christ in response to our need of him. Ortland writes, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. When we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. God delights to meet the needs of his people. It is not a burden to him. It's the way that he designed things to be. Might we, like the daughters of Zelophehad, be unafraid to ask for help when we need it in light of the faithfulness of God? And so this is the Israelites that we are talking about. So unfortunately, but also not unsurprisingly, not all the examples and responses to the promises of God are faithful ones, one that we can look to um, as examples. Just because the promised land has been fulfilled does not mean that the problem of sin has been fully addressed yet. And later in chapter 17, we see the tribes of Joseph respond with discontentment and doubt to that which God has given them. So chapter 17, 14 through 16 reads, The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear the land for yourselves, there in the land of the Perizzites and the Raphites. The people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plains have chariots fitted with iron but those in Bethshah, its settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. So the people of Joshua, their complaint starts with discontentment. Hey guys, uh, God has blessed us with a lot of people and we're gonna need more than one allotment for ourselves. And when Joshua responds with a pretty practical suggestion that requires some effort on the part of the people, that discontentment suddenly blossoms into distrust. Uh, Wait, we could never defeat the Canaanites in the land. Have you seen the size of their chariots? What a contrast with Caleb, who trusts that if the Lord wills it, his 85-year-old body will be ready for battle. But the whole tribe does not trust God to equip them for victory. How quickly the people of Joseph lose sight of the plot. How quickly do they forget what story they are participating in and all that God has done and will continue to do in faithfulness to his covenant. In the descendants of Joseph, we see the same serpent theology that we have seen since the garden that whispers the lie into every human heart that God does not love, he withholds. Serpent theology tells us that blessing is what God gives, leaving room for us to question 
why God, um, why what God gives doesn't always match what we want. But in contrast, right, covenant theology defines our blessing as God himself. Where in your life has discontentment with the lot God has given you bred distrust of him, himself? Is it in an unfulfilled dream, an opportunity that you thought had a lot of potential but fell through? Is it when you received bad news? Is it feeling stuck in a thankless and mundane task? Is it new friction in a relationship? And are you heeding the instructions and the encouragement of the Joshua's in your life that are connected to the faithfulness of God and are reminding you of the options you have when you yourself have forgotten and lost sight of God's generosity, goodness, and provision? Do you even have Joshua's in your life that remind you of what is true? One of the small group discussion questions addresses this topic, and I encourage you to think further on these things. We see hesitancy among the tribe of Joseph to respond to God's allotment, and we see a similar stagnation um, in the other seven tribes who have yet to receive their allotment from God. We learn about them in chapter 18. So chapter 18, verse 1 begins, The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Appoint three men from each tribe. I will send them out to survey the land and to write a description of it according to the inheritance of each. Then they will return to me. The remaining tribes of Israel arrive in the land with no sense of urgency. Joshua has has to call them into action. And so many times we have seen the Israelites fail because they try to take things into their own hands. Honestly, this passage feels a little bit ironic. They act without God's blessing and outside of his timing, but now it feels like they've swung too far in the opposite direction. Here, the last seven tribes do nothing at all. And on the one hand, I get it. This is all so new to them. What does it look like to dwell and to put down roots in a city and as a city? To go from battles to buildings, from plundering to settling down? Suddenly, the Israelites are faced with so many new things. And as much as they they have longed for the end of their wanderings in the wilderness, it is also all this generation has ever known. Transitions naturally create for us hesitation. But Davis points out that Yahweh's promises are intended not as sedatives, but as stimulants. The invitation is for us to ponder what it would look like for us to be stimulated by the promises of God, to see them as a call to action and participation instead of letting ourselves fall captive to hesitancy. And this is clearly something that the writer of Joshua wants his readers to be thinking about because the same warning signs come up again and again throughout this section as a warning um, that is a direct result of the Israelites' hesitancy. Some might even call it sloth and inaction. So Joshua 13, 13, 15, 63, 16, 10, 17, 12 through 13 all tell of how the Israelites failed to completely drive the Canaanites from the land like God had commanded them to do. Instead, the text reads that the groups of the Canaanites remained in the land. Now, this can be kind of confusing because isn't the whole point that God has given the land to the Israelites? Why are there any Canaanites still there at all? And Susan mentioned this last week, but in Exodus 23, 29 through 30, this question is answered. God reports that his intention is to drive the Canaanites out of the land slowly so that Israel is in a position of strength to actually keep and care for the land instead of letting things become desolate and overrun with wild animals. So there are towns and villages of Canaanites that remain to prevent desolation. And as the Israelites begin to settle and grow in strength, instead of finishing the clearing off of the land, they decide it's good enough just to subdue the Canaanites and to make them forced laborers. 
They choose good enough over obedience. I once heard um, Russ Whitfield, who's a pastor in DC, draw a parallel between the ways we drift from God and the way that we drift down shore when we're standing in the ocean. Um, if you ever, you know, have like waded out into the ocean pretty far um, for a period of time, you find that though you are not really conscious of ever moving, when you look back at the beach, you are significantly further down shore from where your towel and chair are resting. Um, you're much further away from where you started than you thought. The longer you stay in, often the further the drift becomes. But unless you look back at the shore, you would be unlikely to notice any movement at all. Subtly yet profoundly, the pull of the tide has moved you away from where you started without you even realizing it. And the Canaanites will have the same subtle but profound pull on what was intended to be the faithful witness to God's character of the Israelite nation. I'm reminded of the line in the musical Hamilton that becomes a repeated refrain for George Washington when he's trying to get Hamilton to kind of think big picture. He says, he says things like, dying is easy, young man, living is harder. And winning is easy, young man, governing is harder. I wonder if those sentiments would have rung true for the Israelites. The Israelites made it through the wilderness. They conquered major cities like Jericho. They fought tirelessly on the day that the earth stood still and they were given more daylight. But when they settle into the land, it is merely the distraction and procrastination of ordinary everyday life in which they begin to drift. They believe that they have control over things which they do not. You, you'll have to keep reading into Judges to see the full consequences and influence of the now subdued Canaanites left in the land, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say that sin will have serious consequences. In Joshua 13 through 21, we celebrate that the covenantal promise of land has been fulfilled, and that is magnificent and so revealing of God's love for his people. But we also see in the Israelites that the problem of sin remains. Thankfully, we know that the story does not end here. And in Christ, we see that God is not preparing a land for us here and now, but instead is preparing a place for us with him personally and permanently, first through the forgiveness of our sins that reconcile us to God, and then in the fully restored new heavens and new earth that we wait for. In John 14, Jesus says to his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for them. And Jesus appeals to them with this reminder. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. We believe in Jesus because he is the incarnation of God's faithfulness. Just as the details of every city and border of Israelites' inheritance were an incarnation of God's faithfulness to them, Jesus and our personal and permanent relationship with him is our inheritance. Looking at the past, we see God is faithful to that which he has promised, and we trust that to be just if true as what he has promised us in Christ. So just to bring things full circle, Tony Shalhoub, who's an actor from Monk and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I don't know if you know him or not, but he was a guest on Finding Your Roots a couple seasons ago. And he learned a lot about the devastating reality his grandfather faced growing up in Lebanon during this great famine that also happened to coincide with World War I. And he humbly reflected, we want to think of ourselves as masters of what we do and what we accomplish. And really, we are just playing this thing out that was set in motion a long time ago. This quote has really stuck with me. When we turn to the past to learn about ourselves, as we seek to find our roots, even if we are doing so outside of the scriptures, we can't help but find that we are participating in a story that is about so much more than us, dependent on so much more than us. Yes, God in Christ is relating to us personally, preparing a place uniquely for us, but ultimately we are participating in a story that at every turn points to God's faithfulness to his promises and his people. We are playing this thing out that was set in motion a long time ago. 
Might that bigger story be to us a source of assurance, of boldness, gratitude, and comfort? When we remember and see throughout history, God is faithful. He's faithful in the battle, and he's faithful in the border drawing. He's faithful in the crisis, and he's faithful in the everyday details. We are encouraged to remain steadfast and expectant in light of what has been promised. Might we find rest, whatever our allotment from God, because we know all things are working together to display his faithful character. Because we know not one of all the Lord's good promises to us will fail. Everyone will be fulfilled. Amen.